Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. This is Lucas coming back at you for another solo episode, but fear not. Uh, Tyler and I will get our affairs in order and start uh, co-hosting again in due time. We'll resume, of course, given the uh, distance between us. But in the meantime, we're, uh, we got another fun episode lined up. Well, fun might be putting a too positive a spin on it, but an important episode and enjoyable always to talk with our guest for this topic. So today we'll be talking about uh, made medical assistance in dying, uh, specifically related to what is happening here in Canada. And today's uh, guest to discuss this, you know, rather morbid topic, but hopefully with uh, a positive spin about what we're seeing at least is Mike Shooten. And many of you will know him from uh, the organization ARPA, Association for Reform Political Action. We've talked to a number of their uh, key staff members before on this podcast. But just in case you don't know Mike, I'll give you a, a quick bio on him. So he is ARPA's Director of Advocacy. And in that role, he works closely with provincial managers to ensure that ARPA educates, equips, and encourages members of Canada's Reformed Churches for political action. Uh, Mike also serves as the director of ARPA's pro-life initiative, the We Need a Law campaign. He's been featured many times in mainstream media, speaks regularly across uh, the country at community events, schools, churches, et cetera, on the topics of euthanasia and abortion, and uh, what Canadians can do to take steps to promote justice for vulnerable Canadians who are enduring suffering. He lives in BC with his wife, Jen, and they are parents of six children, and one of whom has recently been promoted to his home in heaven with Jesus, which leads us into today's discussion. Mike has a particularly personal connection to this issue, and so maybe I'll invite you to first, thank you for being here, Mike, and then secondly, just walk us through uh, your story with with your son and uh, how that relates to this topic today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Lucas, for for hosting Real Talk. Uh, I do appreciate many of the episodes that, that you and Tyler put out, and uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak a little bit into euthanasia and um, and what we as Christians can do, I think both politically and pastorally on this topic. It, it has been a um, a hard road that, that God has led us on, as you and many of your, your listeners, your viewers will know, ARPA Canada has been involved in the euthanasia file for many, many years now. And it's just been, yeah, intriguing to see God working in our lives to to the point where something that we worked on in the abstract kind of at the policy level all of a sudden uh, played just a really big role in our lives where where God led us um, yeah through a road of suffering for our son Marcus who was diagnosed with bone cancer and after 15 months uh, succumbed to that and, and as you just indicated was promoted to be with Jesus so that's given us uh, yeah, just a lot of thoughts about suffering and how we can respond to suffering and how many people in the world today are responding to suffering in ways that, that aren't consistent with with the biblical worldview and how that's uh, troubling and concerning to us, as it always has been, but it feels more so now, just having that lived experience of, of going through that process. So I look forward to, to this discussion with you. I look forward to, to sharing with you and with your your audience, uh, just some of the thoughts that come to mind after um, going through that part of the journey. And I should say that the journey is still ongoing. Uh, grief um, is hard, and it's it's only been seven months since Marcus passed away. And it's, it, yeah, it's not easy as a family to kind of reinvent yourself, uh, both as husband and wife and parents and children when when someone who was part of your family for 18 years, their character, their disposition, their their contributions are also not there. Uh, so, so that's been challenging. And, and in light of that, I, I would like to pass on, on behalf of our family, huge thanks to, to the Reformed community in Canada, who has really been there for us through prayer and practical support, words of encouragement uh, through Marcus's illness and, and even afterwards. That's been huge for us. We very much felt lifted by prayer. Um, so 
thanks to everyone. We really appreciate that. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic to hear. You guys are, uh, yeah, doing okay, all things considered. And um, yeah, I'm sure many people will continue to pray for you as you uh, continue on this journey. As you said, it's it's not over, and um, yeah, you have to continue to to live life in this new reality. So, I guess maybe to uh, to tie into that a little bit, we should talk about the opportunity, perhaps, that you you and Jen had your wife to go to Ottawa to a presentation. Um, to, I believe it was a mixed uh, committee of, of MPs and senators. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about, how this opportunity presented itself, and then what that experience was like uh, going to Ottawa? Obviously, you're familiar with uh, Ottawa, but to to give testimony on such an important file and one that seemed to be moving very quickly in a direction that uh, w- was not favorable to uh, to our view on this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, for for the benefit of everyone, this committee that you speak about, it, it was a joint committee, right? So that means it's made up of members of parliament and senators. And the committee actually is a result of uh, when Canada first legalized euthanasia back in 2016. So part of that legalization process was a mandatory five-year review. So just to have parliament review it, where are we at? Uh, where are things going? Should we be expanding it further? Should we be restricting it more? How's it playing out? So um, that's what this committee was tasked with doing. Part of the considerations that were before them was whether or not to expand euthanasia to mature minors or to children, to children who are of the capacity to be able to make that decision upon the determination of of a doctor or a medical practitioner. So um, in in the spring of 2022, uh, when they were hearing specifically on that topic, mature minors, uh, our Canada encouraged our supporters to um, submit written um, remarks to the committee that the committee would read and take into account as they deliberated and, and made recommendations to Parliament. So at, at that time, Jennifer and I, my wife Jennifer and I, we wrote a submission together with Marcus, who was still alive at the time. And, and that was kind of a, a result of Marcus coming to the recognition that um, that what we were going through connected uh, very poignantly with the work that he knew I did. And I recall one time him saying to me, he said, Dad, I, I can see how, how what's happening is connected with your work. And if if you can use our experience um, through this to, to make a difference, then for sure, then I would expect you to do it. So, so that was April 2022, uh, about six weeks before Marcus passed away. We sent in a submission to, to the AMAD committee, this joint committee. And, uh, and then we, we didn't really hear anything from it. Um, on the work side, my colleagues uh, who were obviously still working, I was taking some time away from work. They uh, were monitoring all the submissions that were going into this committee and so on. And then at the beginning of November, um, this, this past November, I was pretty much integrated back in, into work full time after a time away after Marcus passed, passed on. And uh, we just got an email to our family email, the family email that we had sent that submission in through. Uh, just said, hey, the, the committee's read your written remarks and they would like to invite you to come to Ottawa and, and present your testimony to the committee. So it was kind of one of these opportunities where you don't really want to do that, but but it was a door that got open before us that we felt obliged to, to consider and, and pretty quickly came to the decision that, that we should use this opportunity to share our story and try to try to present a Christian perspective on suffering and, and death in our country and some of the concerns we had with their, um, yeah, they're considering even expanding it to into the realm of mature minors. So that's how, that's how that invitation came about. Okay. And so you travel to Ottawa, you're there in front of these MPs, these senators, I mean, somewhat of an intimidating environment, even for a guy like yourself, who's in this line of work somewhat. Um, how did you go about crafting uh, your statement and, and what was, for those of maybe who haven't seen it, what was the gist of that statement and what what tack did you take in arguing this? Because you're, you're put in a tricky position, obviously. This is, this is not 2016 anymore. Like euthanasia is very much in place. We're getting further down the road. And this is more about putting, you know, for, forgive the, yeah, it's probably not the best example, but like putting a stake in the ground saying like, hey, we can't go any farther than this. And it's tricky maybe to argue from that point, but how did you approach 
uh, crafting an argument and making a pitch for, for these MPs and for these senators. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, they did give us parameters for sure. So we had to, we had to, you know, take that into account. So they said, you're, it's a joint submission between you and your wife together. You get five minutes and you can split that up however you want. And then there will be an opportunity for questions from senators and, and members of parliament. <clears throat> so one of the first things I did was actually watch uh, some of the recent meetings just to see what kind of tone was at these meetings, what type of questions were coming, uh, how did they how did they frame questions uh, to witnesses who were presenting that were clearly opposed to expanding euthanasia, and how did they frame questions to people who were in favor of expanding euthanasia? So, so that was certainly helpful. Um, one of the things I noticed, and you'll probably remember this from your time in Ottawa too, is how at, at committees, that's where a lot of the, the work gets done of government. Um, it's very collegial. They they have to work together. Um, they obviously come from different perspectives, but they need to work together to find solutions for things. So um, I, we were nervous more so because it, it always is a bit um, unknown when you share a personal story like ours, how, how that's gonna come across. Like, are you going to have um, enough strength to do it? What kind of emotions are gonna come to the fore while you're relaying the story and so on? So, so that was more a bit of our trepidation, especially um, Jennifer, my wife, who is, this is not her thing at all to, to be involved in politics. So that was some of it. And then as to what we wanted to say, we were pretty intentional about, like we wanna share our, our story, and then we want to really impress upon the committee um, in so far as making recommendations. Like we recommend you not expand. And, and that was due to some of the work we had done with uh, members of parliament and other people that work in Ottawa who gave us advice and said, if you're, if you're presenting there, be sure to make specific recommendations. And that was just because as they draft, as they go and draft recommendations, they're gonna be searching through all the witness statements for who made recommendations and they're just gonna do a control F uh, recommendations or recommend. So, so that was good, good advice that, that we tried to put into to place. And then it was, okay, well, what are we gonna recommend? And I think that gets to where you were going as far as you know, how hard a line you draw in the sand versus trying to be pragmatic, if you will, and saying, look, this is where we are. This is why we shouldn't expand. And I think we erred more on the side of pragmatic without um, minimizing the fact that, that we're principled Christians. This is our worldview. This is where we're coming from. But it was, it was helpful, I think, to come at it from the pragmatic uh, side, just because we were able to share a little bit into um, how suffering and the request for euthanasia or suicidal desire often is um, it often is determined by the perspective of people around that the person suffering so we would talk about for example right if, if marcus's doctors and, and the people on his healthcare team had said to him would you consider medical assistance in dying because you have a terminal illness we don't know exactly the extent of the suffering that's going to come um, he would have heard then, oh, you're giving up on me. And that would have been very, very, like it would have had a negative impact on him and our family for sure. So trying to, to impress upon the committee and whoever would watch it, that by making the, the choice for euthanasia available to some people who, who really want that, and I'm not saying that they deserve it, but who really want that, you're ensuring that, that everyone else is going to be in a position where they have to consider it because it's legal, because it's now part of the, the suite of tools, if you will, that medical practitioners and doctors can use to treat, so-called treat a person. So just trying to show them that it's not just this autonomous decision that you make that doesn't impact anyone else. It has huge impact. And, and that our experience was such that Marcus's team um, and his, his healthcare providers through the, the uh, BC Children's Hospital and Canuck Place Hospice all focused on him living well uh, every day that, that he did live, even as bad as life became, they were focused on him living well. And our, our Christian perspective as parents and families surrounding him was also such where regardless of how bad it became, we still at the end of every day could say, okay, 
what what happened today that we could praise God for. And there was always something every single day that we could, even though uh, the suffering intensified more and more as as the end came near. So, yeah, there was some quite a bit of thought put into how how to present this to the committee. <clears throat> and then, as far as the the actual interactions we had with members of Parliament and senators, I. I was very much prepared that there wouldn't be any questions that the MPs and senators, because most of them are um, in favor of expanding medical assistance to dying, would recognize where we came from and just you know, thank us for sharing our story and, and move along. But the, the questions did come, there were, there were lots of them. I think 10 in total, 10 different times we had opportunity to interact. And that was, you know, I think just a, um, yeah, just a gift from God to be able to share uh, time and again a similar message in different ways as we interacted with those questions. So we received good feedback from even even the senators and MPs who didn't agree with us um, in in the meeting. Like afterwards, we we touched base with some of them uh, while we were still there, and then the next week we emailed them all and just thanked them for the opportunity to present there and wish them strength and blessing as they uh, deliberated. And most of them responded to us and were very gracious and uh, appreciated our perspective. It was one I think that the committee hadn't heard um, from before, if, if at all. So, hmm. were the kind of questions you got more on the pragmatic policy front, or were you able to kind of peel back a layer? And did you like this? Might be a stretch, but were there any worldview questions kind of thrown at you, like? For example, why do you think life matters? Or were they digging any deeper or was it just more pragmatic policy type questions? It was more so on the policy side, but but worldview was very much at play. Yeah. Um, especially my wife really noticed that. She said it was, you could just feel the clash of worldviews. And in a sense, it was a little bit frustrating because they're just, they're coming at the topic at this discussion from such a different place than we are that they, they just, they can't see it. And, and I think as Christians, we would understand that like if the spirit is not working that in you, you're not going to see it. Um, but on the policy side, I think for me, what was most disappointing was that they tried to, they would try to get us to agree that in some instances, euthanasia for children should be allowed. And they, they were really pushing us to just agree that it was okay in some instances. And of course, we didn't want to do that. But but again, here to what I had viewed at the committee's work beforehand, uh, there was one instance where one of the committee members asked, a, it was a psychiatrist, and uh, he just also said, he's like, so you're not in favor of euthanasia at all, for any reason, at any age. And the psychiatrist said, no. And then he was going to go on to say something, but but the senator then interrupted the witness and just said, okay, thanks and this moved on, right? So they kind of want that polarization, like they want an us versus them um, scenario. And we, we tried our best to not um, get into that, but just to communicate a, a compassionate answer every time uh, they would put those questions forward. So it was, um, the other interesting thing to note was that the week prior, they had had a witness from Quebec, a Quebec mom, uh, about a little boy, or not little, a 15-year-old boy named Charles. And, and he had cancer, a different kind of cancer than Marcus, but a similar type of journey uh, where they just they, they couldn't get it and he eventually passed away. But, but she was there advocating for euthanasia for, for minors, for mature minors, because she committed that to, to Charles, her son. She said, I am going to do my best to make sure that, that someone in your position again has the ability to request made. And, and it, it was an emotional type of uh, yeah, submission as well. And, and it was, you know, from that perspective, good in that sense. But the, the, the outcome, the conclusion she came to was so polar opposite ours, right? It was like he and she wants patients, wants people who are suffering to have that autonomous decision. And, and in her words, it uh, was, um, was just so telling. She said, Charles wanted some semblance of victory over the cancer, that he was the one who got to decide when his life would come to an end. In that way, 
somehow claim victory over the cancer. So yeah, when you're conversing with people and relating to people that really have no concept of, of a sovereign God who in, you know, in his providence puts certain things on certain people's paths and, um, and they're responsible for how they respond to them, like they don't have any of that concept. So it's, yeah, it's hard to relate, but I think on the level of, of just human suffering and how we as humans need to reach out and support each other when we're suffering, I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I hope and pray that, that our story impacted them um, as they're right now, they're deliberating right now. So mm -hmm. that's, that's gotta be such a challenge for MPs and senators. I mean, if, uh, of course, they all have their own, their own worldviews, but to get an emotional testimony from one side of the spectrum, and then also to get the testimony that you and Jen shared as well, that's, yeah, if they're not, uh, yeah, if they don't have a properly grounded worldview, it's, it's got to be so hard to decipher that. Not to complete, yeah, complete devil's advocate, but if you were to put yourselves in their shoes without the guardrails and without the worldview that we have, I could see where that would be a challenge for them. Did you find that it was... Um, at least, and this is kind of my read following it more as, as a layperson, not as involved obviously as yourself, but it seems to be that the, their ultimate value, if our ultimate value is the sanctity of life and the importance of every person as created in the image of God, there seems to be the sanctity of human choice. And that's kind of what it seems to all revolve around. Is that right? Or, or am I missing something there? Yeah, I think, I think that's behind that um, desire for, for autonomy to the extent that that even your final breath is determined by you. Like you are the one who gets to determine when that is on your, like on your conditions in your time, etc. Yeah, I think very much so. Um, and I, I did, you know, in in our testimony, we, we did try to speak into that in the sense of there is something incredibly liberating about not knowing when that exact moment is, because it allowed us to, and Marcus, to just live one day at a time. And, and as the days got shorter, you know, one hour at a time. And that was liberating because, I, I, so we've talked about it as family so often, actually, when we look back at the pictures of Marcus's last month and last weeks, and you see the dates when the picture was taken and how at that time, that picture was taken we had no idea that marcus would, would pass away within two weeks or within one week or within two days and because we didn't know we could just live to the glory of god each moment of each day and if somebody would have said to us two weeks before oh marcus is going to pass away two weeks from now how much uh, anxiety that would have brought in the sense of oh okay you have two weeks to live what are you going to do what should you not do? What should you do? Who should come visit? Who shouldn't come visit? All of that kind of stuff. Whereas we didn't have to think about that because it was in God's timing when he would go. And then that was very um, uh, moving, I think, in our experience in the sense of when we were at the hospice, uh, we were only there for, for three days. And at the, at the end of the first day, the Friday, uh, Marcus thought he was going to go. Like we all thought he was going to go. And, and then on that Saturday morning, he was still, he was still with us. So, so I asked him then, I said, Marcus, do you want your friends to come? And should we invite Grandma and Grandpa to, to come and say goodbye and open them up? And he, he was like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And throughout that day, some people that were very important to, to him and, and in his life came and had just beautiful moments with him. And, and I think back and I'm like, it, and we said this to the committee, we said if, if MAID had been offered, it would have made very much sense to, to ask a doctor to end his life on Friday night. Like we've all had our chance to say goodbye. Why keep suffering? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we wouldn't have had Saturday, right? Just a, just a wonderful day with family and friends, um, making memories, having just great closure this side of eternity. Uh, and, and, and and then Marcus going on, on the Sunday afternoon. Um, so I've had people interact with me afterwards who watched it, who, who are agnostic, um, not Christian, maybe, maybe grew up Christian, but have walked away or indifferent to it. And that really spoke to them 
that aspect of one more day, right? I do, um, I do some uh, relations with uh, the Terry Fox Foundation, and you and your listeners will know that name, Terry Fox, and and you know he he had such a will to live and to keep moving on. To you know, one of the slogans they always have is "Never give up." And uh, people associated with that organization contacted me and they said, "Wow, that was that was incredible!" Like one more day, like that. That's exactly how people think of Terry Fox. Not somebody that anybody gave up on. He didn't certainly give up on life himself. So just trying in those ways to speak to people at a level that they start to recognize some of the problems with how in Canada specifically, um, we're starting to more and more respond to suffering. And that's by just end your life. Like, why not? It's easy, right? It's on your own terms. But that's not how God has created us and we would be against euthanasia because because God is the author of life and it's in his timing. And we can say that, but I think we can also talk about how um, as human beings, we shouldn't give up on each other. We need to um, do what we can to support and love each other so that every day we're alive, every day that we have here on earth is, is, a, is a good day and a day that we can be thankful for and praise God for. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a great perspective. I can see how that would convince people too. I was legitimately just getting goosebumps hearing you you talk about that. So it's uh, it's inspiring, and I think it's a it's a good pitch, even for for secular uh, yeah fellow neighbors and, and Canadians to yeah to take each day one step at a time and to uh, to enjoy it and to and to relish it. Um, and then obviously as Christians, knowing who's, who's gives us time and, and who controls our lives. Um, okay. So maybe we'll shift gears here a little bit to talk about the history of made kind of how we got to where we are here in 2023. So this, this actually kind of goes back to when I was kicking around in Ottawa, 2016, 2017. Um, do you want to go through a couple of key pieces of legislation? It kind of starts really with when Trudeau got in office. Um, just lay out a few, few of the highlights for how we got here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was actually just before the 2015 election when when Justin Trudeau and the Liberals won. So it was earlier that year when the court struck the Canada's euthanasia laws down, yeah. uh, declaring them as unconstitutional. There was a time period between that court decision and the election where um, we were looking to to the Conservatives, who were still in power at the time, to to put forward a bill, put forward something that would address this court decision. In fact, Arthur Canada worked hard on what we called the third option, which was a, an option that would still ensure that euthanasia was, was illegal according to the criminal code, but uh, the law was uh, drafted in, in a way that was constitutional and ought to have fit with the Supreme Court decision. But, but anyway, um, I think it's also good to remind ourselves that this didn't just start in 2015 with the court decision. Like there, people have been advocating in Canada all the way back to you know the days of Sven Robinson even for the legalization of euthanasia and people's, like we think of the Sue Rodriguez case in I guess 1993. Um, so this goes back quite a ways. But anyway, more recently, like you said, when you were, when you were in Ottawa, you and I would meet there quite often. Um, so 2016, the Liberals are in power. Uh, they drafted a new law, which, which the Supreme Court said they instructed Parliament to draft a new law that was constitutional within a year. And they did that. And that was Bill C-14. <clears throat> so that, that allowed euthanasia for people with uh, like irremediable conditions, people who were very near the end of their life and, uh, and death was, was imminent or from death was imminent. And very quickly, euthanasia advocates started agitating for, for more. They wanted the, the legislation relaxed. Uh, there was a court case in 2020 in um, Quebec. It's often referred to just simply as the Truchon decision. Uh, where the, the law that had just been passed in 2016 was deep, parts of it were deemed unconstitutional. And rather than challenging that, which in Canada, that's what can happen, the, the government who had just passed that law four years, four years prior could have challenged it or appealed the decision. They didn't. They chose not to, which showed us where liberals were at at the time. They, they were very much open to expanding euthanasia. So instead of appealing that decision, they decided to introduce new legislation that would address what that lower court judge had ruled as unconstitutional. And that gave us Bill C-7. So that bill was passed in 2021. 
In fact, almost almost exactly two years ago, March 2021, that bill was passed, and that um, opened up euthanasia for for far more Canadians, including Canadians who were not um, near the end of their life and and dying. So very concerning. Perhaps what's most concerning about that bill, and that's what many of your listeners would recognize, is that there was a provision put in it for allowing euthanasia for people with mental illness as the sole underlying condition. So somebody with mental illness. But the problem is, or not the problem, the the proviso they put in was that they said that part of the law is not going to kick in for two years. So while they passed it in March 2021, opening the door far wider to people for euthanasia to request and receive it, the part pertaining to people with mental illness as the sole underlying condition, that wouldn't kick in until March 2023, and and we're coming up to that. So that was called a sunset clause, and that sunset clause would would be removed in in, um, 2023, and then people could request to receive euthanasia just on the basis of mental illness. So for that reason, ARPA Canada has, um, we have what's called a Care Not Kill campaign, and that's been in place for a number of years now. We, We pivoted that campaign after this bill was passed to focus just on that provision. <clears throat> so just focusing on that. And that really has resonated with Canadians, uh, whether they're faith-based Canadians or, or just Canadians at large are concerned that people with mental illness will be able to avail themselves of euthanasia as of March, 2023. So, so that's where we're at in Canada today. Um, we should also note probably that um, just prior to Christmas, so a number of weeks ago, the Liberal government indicated that they were going to delay this sunset clause. Um, that's as a result of the, the pushback uh, coming from both within Canada and outside Canada. The international community is also um, quite concerned about where we're headed. And uh, David Lametti, the Justice Minister, indicated then that there would be a delay. We, we don't have a clue what that's going to look like. Uh, so as an organization right now, we're still moving forward with March 2023 as the deadline because unless a, um, an active parliament is introduced and passed that changes that, that's that's the lay of the land right now. I think, okay, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was, okay. No, I was just going to tee that up a bit for you then. So that's where we sit right now. Um, I think maybe if we do a worst case scenario and then we'll try to end with the best case scenario. Uh, that'd be a little more uh, fun to do it that way. So, okay. So putting your pessimistic hat on, where do you think this is heading potentially? Well, I think I like to think that, that somewhere there's going to be a a line drawn in the sand, like some, somehow parliamentarians are going to see that, okay, we've pushed too far too fast and we have to draw a line. And and, then we're, we're really hopeful that that can happen here at the, the mental illness provision that Parliament can say, no, that, that's enough, we're not going that far. Uh, you, you hear that kind of language more and more from uh, the opposition parties and not just the Conservatives, the, the NDP as well are quite concerned about um, you know, when people are going to homeless shelters and people are making requests for medical assistance and dying because they can't afford housing, basic medical requirements then they're on board too with uh, the push to try to, to stop this. So I think though, while there is hope there, we do need to recognize you know, what this has resulted in, in our country. Um, we've had you know, euthanasia legalized in Canada for not even seven years. And the data we have to, right to the end of 2021, that's the latest data we have, shows a tenfold increase in, in made deaths in Canada in only five years, from around just over 1,000 in 2016 to over 10,000 in 2021. And and more and more the requests for euthanasia are not because somebody is very near the end of their life and dying, but but for things like, I don't have the same quality of life as I used to. Um, I I can no longer um, do the same things that I used to. Uh, some Some of them even citing loneliness and isolation as a reason to request euthanasia. So this um, connection between law and culture is really being felt, right? Where 
Whereas before, all, all efforts would be made to help somebody address their suicidal desires because of some underlying condition. Now, the easy way out is just to request medical assistance and die. And we have a government who's all too eager to, to oblige that. So, so it's a bad, that's bad. Like that's the, the really concerning uh, aspect of where we're at, how this has changed culture in a sense. And uh, back to, to actually, if I, if I could for a minute, I don't, know, I don't know how much time we have yet, but. Oh, lots. Go ahead. Okay. Um, we were able to make this point at the committee as well. And I think it's good. It's good for us people advocating against euthanasia to, to, to remember this, that palliative care is a huge part of this conversation as well. And we, in our situation with Marcus's illness and, and his hospice and palliative care, were able to experience how we can do things in a way that many adults never experience. Um, we, we've all heard stories of adults, uh, whether it's grandparents or parents or just uncles or aunts or whoever, who get uh, a cancer, a bad type of cancer like Marcus had. And it takes months and months and months to get an appointment with an oncologist, to see somebody about this kind of treatment too. And then when it comes to, to palliative and hospice care, most of us have in our minds you know, it's like Uncle Joe's in, in, in palliative care. That's pretty much like, oh, he must be dying within 24 or 36 hours. That's why he's in palliative care now. Whereas with us, um, palliative care was engaged with Marcus about, so he passed away in May, about seven, seven eight months before he passed away. And that was because their, their teams are all about addressing symptoms. So what that meant for us practically speaking, was that we, we never had to run around looking for treat, different treatments for Marcus or he's experiencing this, what should we do now and go searching for a, a solution to his symptom. They were always ahead of us because they were in constant contact with us. So when, when this arose, they would bring different, um, a different bed or a different pillow. When this arose, they would, they would subscribe this type of medication and it was readily available in there. And that allowed him to not and us as a family to enjoy the days we had with him rather than getting anxious and fretting about what to do about the suffering that our loved ones enduring and, and we're not knowing what to do and trying to find the person who knew what to do, etc. So palliative care, as it, as it is um, playing out in Canada for children, is kind of where we need to go when it comes to adults as well. But what's happening, and this gets to the law and culture thing, what's happening with the, the um, rapid expansion to medical assistance in dying is that we're not, like why would we invest tons into palliative care when it seems like people are quite pleased and happy to choose this route. And they're choosing that route oftentimes, not just for autonomous reasons, but because the people around them, their families, the, the medical community, government are giving up on them. They're sending that message. We're giving up on you. Your life's not worth living. You're right. It isn't. Okay, we can help you end it. So I think that, yeah, there's there's a far better way, but the situation is dire, both based on, on the stats that we see and how we can observe that that culture is shifting in this way. Okay. Now shifting to, to the positive side of things, um, what are some reasons for hope? I mean, you talked about palliative care. Um, yeah, the ways we can impact the narrative around, um, yeah, around made and around palliative care. I know, uh, for example, at least here in Ontario, uh, friend of the show, Sam Ostroff has had some success on, on palliative care. Um, is there a difference we can make on a policy level or is this more of a narrative, uh, you know, reaching out to our neighbors, stuff like care, not kill approach, uh, or perhaps a both end. Yeah, I think it, it is, really is a both end. Like, I think there are, there are political solutions, if you will, I would say partial solutions to, to what we're dealing with. Um, so governments who support palliative care, robust palliative and hospice care strategies, that that's excellent. We need, we need people like you just referenced, Sam Ostroff, to advance that kind of thing and uh, be able to support in provincial and federal legislatures, for sure. Um, and, and some of that's happening. I think that, you know, optimistically speaking, we look at the work that's gone into the Care Not Kill campaign and how 
Christians and, and non-Christians alike have been working hard to inform their neighbors, to communicate with their members of parliament, to build relationships with their MPPs and MLAs and express these concerns in a, uh, an understandable way, in a, a winsome way, it is having an impact. Like they're hearing us and the fact that David Lametti felt that he needed to assure Canadians that they're gonna delay and, and take another look at this is a, a win, a partial win, but it's a win in our opinion, for sure. So, so there are still government officials and governments in our country who do listen. They listen to the people and when we're, not just when we're loud enough, but when we're sharing um, s solutions for the problem that we're talking about, this problem of all these people requesting medical assistance and dying, they're starting to hear us. So I think that, that we can be hopeful in that sense. But I think we, we also re need to recognize like our hope is not in governments and, and the laws that they make. We, we pray that the laws they make and the policies they draft would reflect God, God's law and, and his word, his design for our lives. They don't always, but when they do uh, move a little bit in that direction, I think that that's a good thing. But I think there's also an important role for, for Christians and for the church uh, to recognize a, a couple of things that I think that we don't really talk about very much. And that is um, how suffering can actually contribute to a, a whole lot of good in our country. And, and what I mean by that, um, two things come to mind. One is that uh, suffering unleashes love. Uh, so this is a phrase I remember hearing my my friend Stephanie Gray Connors, I don't know if you recognize that name, Stephanie Gray, but yep. she's married now and lives in the United States. But she, she has this phrase which she got from, from John Paul II, um, suffering unleashes love. And uh, the experience that we had, and we talked about already with Marcus, we, we really felt that. We felt how suffering unleashed love. Um, it had to, of course, unleash love from us as a family around Marcus but it unleashed love from many other people as well. And, and we, didn't, um, we didn't try to create a, a martyr type of complex, like, like we're suffering, we need help. But the fact that people wanted to help was good. And I think that we need to think as Christians, especially in, in this land and as church, that suffering is a part of life. And if we're going to, if our if our desire as Christians is to hide suffering and to not talk about it, and, and most of us grew up in homes, and, and some of us are probably still growing up in homes where we don't talk about suffering. Like that's something we don't want anybody to know about. We hide it. And I'm not saying that we, we showcase it and we're always you know, putting out um, social media posts about our suffering and so on. But I think that we need to witness to the world how suffering can unleash love. And there is a better response than simply going to your doctor and asking her to, to end your life because you're sick of it and you, you don't want to live anymore. And we experience this as Christians. We experience how suffering unleashes love. I mean, our, our, the good news of the gospel is about suffering unleashing love, right? Our suffering, falling into sin, unleashing the love of Jesus Christ coming down to earth and dying for our sin. And we need to show that to people in our spheres of influence, whether it's fellow family members, whether it's people in our church community, whether it's people in the, in the broader community, that there is a better way. And I think that there's a lot of what goes on in society that already um, embodies that, if you will. Right? We, there's lots of other policies that get discussed, maybe by you guys, but certainly in the media and so on. You think of homelessness, you think of uh, addictions, issues, these are like people who, who are concerned about these things and are doing what they can to help those who are disenfranchised and, and are dealing with addictions are doing so because of the, the human spirit to care and have compassion for each other and try to lift each other up and do what we can to enable someone who, who might be down out to enable them to flourish. Um, we don't give in to that, um, that suffering. Right? We don't give in to that despair and say, oh, you're right, your life does suck. Um, I can help you deal with that. No, no, we try to lift them up. You know, Lucas, I remember, and I've relayed the story to a couple of MPs as well. So I grew up here in the, in the Fraser Valley of British Columbia. And there's a, as in most um, urban centers, there's like a big 
radio talk show, and for us it was CKW 980. And we'd drive around um, the Fraser Valley on a, on a Saturday, me and my dad and a couple of my siblings, and you know, every 10 minutes the traffic would come on, the traffic report, right? How We didn't have phones back then, so you need to listen to traffic reports so you know which areas to avoid. And once in a while, the traffic reporter would say something like this. They would say, the Petula Bridge is closed due to a police incident. And as a kid, I can remember hearing that and wondering, what does that mean? Like, what? And then I asked my dad once, I said, what does that mean? And he said, it means that there's probably someone in such a state of despair that they want to end their life and they're standing on the edge of the bridge and they want to jump off and they close the bridge because there's people that are trying to help that person. They're trying to talk them back and they're trying to put them into a place where they can deal with some of the things that are causing them this despair. And, and I just reflect on that now in, in 2023 in Canada and how proverbially speaking, we're, we're not doing that. We're actually, we're actually affirming that despair and, and actually helping push the person off. And, and that's such a, that's two totally different ways to approach suffering. And I think that as Christians, we have to showcase the former. We have to showcase how we can be there for each other. And when we do experience suffering in our life, I think we shouldn't shy away from, from witnessing how to respond to that. We shouldn't shy away from that. Um, you know, the story Job comes to mind for me always. And, uh, you know, you and your listeners will know that story well. And Job, you know, he had like over 10,000 um, different herds. Uh, he had 10 children and, and it all got taken away. And then Satan went back to God and said, oh, yeah, but yeah, touch his, his life, touch him, and he's going to disown you. And, and what did Job do, right? Um, he, he got diseases, Satan put, inflicted that on him, and his wife, the person closest to him, said, forsake God and die. Right? And that's, that's what's happening now in our world. People are saying, like, just screw it. Just, just end it. It's enough, enough's enough. And Job's response is so telling. And, it, and it, in his response, he's witnessing, um, first of all, to his wife then at the time, but also to, to all of us now who get to read that story. It's like, should we accept only good from God and not bad? And I think that we understand that as Christians. And we need to, uh, maybe it's not the right word, but we need to showcase that. We need to witness that type of response to the people around us when we face the suffering mm -hmm. so that they can see, so that they can see that better way. So that when maybe when they're in that kind of situation, they remember that and they reach out to somebody and, and try to live every day well, instead of despairing and then making that request for, for euthanasia. So a lot, there's a lot there, but political for sure, there's political part, but there's very much a, a pastoral component to this too. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and, and that's where it starts, right? It's sure politics is is there, but it's definitely downstream of of our culture and and just the day to day witnessing to to each of of those around us. And if we show that joy in suffering, as you talked about, that is a powerful witness. And I think that that will actually go a longer way than we might think to uh, to helping this issue and, and helping turn the tide. Because yeah, as you say, it's it's very strange dichotomy we have where. Still today, like you, you definitely do hear about it. Like they'll they'll shut down the Skyway Bridge here locally or whatever because someone will be on it. And I saw a, a story the other day about a couple hockey players who were going across one of these bridges, and somebody was trying to jump, and they pulled aside, and they ended up talking them off a ledge. And there was a whole article praising them for doing that, and and justly so. It's it's a good act to do. So I think yeah, is there. Is, is that part of, I guess, ARPA's strategy? And, and maybe you could go into some of the tools that ARPA has to, uh, to help everyday folks to, uh, to help fight against this legislation, to help talk to our neighbors, to witness to them. Um, is that in some of the messaging uh, you guys have put out to speak to our secular Canadian neighbors about, um, yeah, maybe mental health? Because I think that's a real point of uh, common interest and in, in unity between uh ourselves and the reform community and our neighbors everybody cares about it it's a big issue um generally the the message is typically on mental health especially in january here in this month where we're recording this you have bell let's talk day coming up everybody wants to support those who are having a tough time and to to end the stigma and to talk about these important issues and the message behind that is like you're never you're never alone it's it's never that bad 
I think there could be some real unity on that. Is that something you guys have considered? And is that part of part of your messaging or part of your talking points that you're putting out? Mm -hmm. it, it is. Um, probably not to the extent maybe that, that you're thinking of. Just in your question, I can um, yeah, I can see how there's there's a lot more points of contact that could be made in collaboration, if you will, with, with other organizations. Uh, we haven't done that maybe because we're not sure how those those other organizations would respond if they wanted to work together. And because we recognize that ARPA Canada is not an organization set up to help people with mental illness. Um, that's way outside of our specialty, if you will. But where we have um, included it is in that what you referenced, the Care Not Kill campaign. I mean, the Care Not Kill campaign, the, the first slogan we had before we pivoted to focusing specifically on mental illness was, uh, we need to work hard to ensure that um, suicide is is prevented in Canada, not assisted. Uh, so drawing that contrast between prevention and assistance. And, and that's still part of the, the messaging. But then now we're trying to make it specific to people with mental illness. And you referenced Bell Let's Talk Day. I think that's something that, that most Canadians, they recognize that right away. And that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and that's the, that's the contrast, that, that uh, gap, that dissonance that's between you know, what we've, we've done in, in our country as far as making progress on helping people with mental illness. And then at the same time now on the verge of making suicide actually legal and the state will um, will be complicit in it for people who desire that. So it, how do you hold those two positions, right? Where we, we, we made so much progress, positive progress on encouraging people to reach out, talk to someone, uh, don't jump off the bridge like the story you just relayed, and, and that's so encouraging. But then on the other hand, um, we are allowing them to do that and condoning it should they want to. So, it's and that's i think where we're at uh, when it comes to you know the delay and why so many canadians have been speaking out saying whoa, 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 whoa what are we doing here like um you know people who are even there in favor of, of medical assistance and dying they if they envision themselves you know 85 years old and dying of cancer in a bed they're like yeah, I, I want that i want that for sure but when you talk to them about you know their child with schizophrenia and maybe who has attempted suicide and now they're going to just be able to go to their doctor and get them to sign off and actually do it. And you'll get a call that your, your son or daughter has passed away because they requested name. Uh, then they're concerned. They're like, whoa, no, no, that's not how we should be living in our country. So that's what we're trying to build on through the Care Not Kill campaign, just getting people to talk uh, to their neighbors, to their MPs, to, you know, whoever, the, wherever this conversation comes up and, and expressing themselves that way and hopefully getting enough people on board to say, yeah, we're going to support the government in holding the line or whoever in government wants to initiate that as a policy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Um, well, I guess maybe looking forward to the spring and this March deadline. I think you referenced it earlier. You guys are essentially just planning on it, not changing because it would take an act of parliament at this point to, to adjust that. Um, if it does change, uh, what is, I guess you just have to see what happens maybe, but what do you see happening in the spring and what are some tangible uh, calls to action or that you have for, for our listeners? Well, the people who, so I would encourage everyone if they're not already to subscribe to our Canada's newsletter, because that way you're, you're going to be kept up to date as to where this is at and what you can do. So just simply go to rpcanada.ca and, and subscribe to our newsletter if, if you haven't already done so. Because you're right, things do change pretty quickly. Um, right now, we're going to continue focusing on the efforts that, that we were engaged with before Christmas on the Care Not Kill campaign. So that's a number of things. So some people have been um, signing petitions. Some people have been putting lawn signs in. Some people have been ordering flyers. So we have uh, mailbox flyers that people can just deliver in their neighborhoods. And those often result in really good conversations with your neighbors. Uh, we get feedback from people who had one of those delivered on their doorstep. and. It's encouraging that people, people are, for the most part, just thankful that someone made them aware of this. And then through that campaign, we're trying to get people to then start building and connect, building a relationship and connect with their member of parliament. Uh, so that's what's been going on. And, and I want to encourage people that that is bearing fruit. And also that if the March deadline comes and goes without any change in policy, that we need to continue with that message because 
If that deadline comes and, and no policy change is made by that deadline, that doesn't mean we have nothing to do. That doesn't mean all hope is lost. We can continue working um, with members of parliament who want to make a change and might introduce a private member's bill or say there's a change in government and, and a new government says we're actually going to address that now we've heard the people. So don't, don't think that if that deadline comes and goes, all your work is for naught. Uh, it definitely is, is still going to bear fruit, uh, God willing, of course, into the, the future. So keep um, building those relationships with your members of parliament. Keep up with this messaging for sure. Okay. I saw a video, I believe you actually may have shared it on, on your Facebook page there about Pierre Polyev, uh, the conservative leader, uh, essentially using what seems to be some of ARPA's talking points on this issue. Uh, if the liberals don't uh, end up changing their minds or back it down on this, are you optimistic that should we see a change in government, uh, there may be some action on this file from the conservatives? Well, I mean, you've been in politics and you know that nothing's a certainty. Uh, but, but I would say that, and that's why I felt compelled to share that, that video, which was, a, was basically a snippet from a, a year-end video that Pierre Polyev had done for one of the news outlets. And it was so encouraging because um, he was talking about it from a policy level, but he was also talking about it from some of the similar um, positions that you and I have just been discussing. Like we, we can and have shown that we can do better than just giving into that despair. When someone needs help, we need to provide ways to address the, the, the suffering, the symptoms they have, not um, just do away with the sufferer. So, so that was encouraging. The other good takeaway I think we can have from that is that should um, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives form government at some point, they're right now building a nice platform which, with which to build some policy from themselves on this. So it's the first time in a long time that we've seen Conservatives not just uh, duck bob and weed from a social issue, but actually tackle it head on and, and have their talking points resonate with Canadians and show that, that really that compassionate side that I think Conservatives need to show and, and ultimately what is um, you know, conservative and Christian in our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is optimistic. That's that's not what I've ever really seen in my lifetime as, as a younger guy, for sure. So we'll see, I suppose, where that goes. Um, yeah, this has flown by. This has been uh, a lot of fun and pretty informative. Do you have any um, closing thoughts you want to leave with, with our listeners and our viewers about uh, yourself, ARPA, this topic, anything like that? I think, generally speaking, sometimes Christians feel that, oh, everything's just getting worse and worse. Uh, where is this all going? Uh, I'm, I'm, I tend to have more a more optimistic view of things. I think God has given us a lot of opportunities still in our country to uh, share his truth, to shine his light, uh, whether it's into the political realm or into the realm of our neighborhoods and, and suburbs where we live. And I think I just want to encourage people to, to focus on that. Um, God is the one who's sovereign. He's in control. And um, God hasn't called us as individuals to fix every problem, especially problems that are so far beyond our, our realm of doing anything. Um, and if we just focus on that and allow ourselves to, to come to a state of despair because of that, then what good is it? So God has put us all in different situations in life, um, and we need to do what we can to, to shine his light into those um, oftentimes very small spheres of influence. And, and that's what um, can give us hope, that we're doing what God has called us to do, and we're allowing our sovereign God to continue um, deciding where our country is going, where Justin Trudeau is going, where Pierre Polyam is going. Like God is the one who's going to decide those things. Um, let's use uh, the time, the energies, the resources that God has blessed us with uh, to bless others and to speak truth into the, the political realm. Well said. Well, thank you for your time, Mike. Much appreciated. I uh, I know I learned a lot and it was encouraged as well. And I hope our listeners were uh, too. Uh, please let us know, obviously, listeners and viewers, what your thoughts were on this episode and um, looking forward to your feedback on that file. But until next time, keep having a real talk. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. 
Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time.